My name is Stephen King. A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories. And I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Do it yourself. Do it yourself. Do it yourself. If you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Here's Johnny. I'll be back. Sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Groovy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, multitudes of mostly bad miniseries. We are talking, of course, about the worst of Stephen King. We've given you the best. Now we got to flip that around, and boy, there's there's just a lot of not great Stephen King out there. It's unfortunate. Anyways, I'm your host, Cody, and joining me today are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. Meteor shit. No, that that was from a good king. I know. I wanted this to start on the high note before we um, go into a little thing I like to call, It Came From Mick Garris. <laughs> and my other co-host, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. Born in lust, turned to dust. Born in sin, come on in. I'm glad I didn't write intros for you guys because you did way better than I would have. Good work. Hey. Hey. Meteor hey, shit. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like it. I would like it if you just got excited every day in your life and you just shouted, meteor shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you go to McDonald's and they accidentally give you a bunch of onion rings with your french fries and you're just driving down the road. Meteor shit. Can that become the new God Bless America and God Bless Iron Man? <laughs> M-O-O-N, that spells meteor shit. One of my favorite parts of In Search of Darkness was finding out Tom Atkins wanted to play that role and was very disappointed when he found out Stephen King already had it. Could you have imagined? (laughs) I mean, yeah, that would have turned out pretty good. Plus, if they had swapped it around, Stephen King could have played the dad who gets killed by his son, which, obviously, that works because he was played by his son. It all works. It is weird how that never came up, apparently. Eh, Stephen King just wanted to break into that acting biz or Stephen King filled with bugs. I mean, Stephen King does make a ton of cameos in his movies. I feel oh, like he like has to talk cameos at this point. Yeah. But they're normally he's like actually plays a character. Like he gets a couple of lines and is on screen for more than a blink. Like in That's... the stand, he is one of the last characters we see on screen for some reason. He's in like two different episodes. I never thought about it, but Stephen King really was the prototype for the Stan Lee cameo. Yeah. It's yeah. fair. And less successfully, the M. Night Shyamalan cameo. <laughs> yeah, it's very, occasionally it is very M. Night. Especially when he, like, gives himself um, the first lines of the film. Or occasionally plays a dreamlike boardroom member between time. That's my favorite. <laughs> as, as you do. It just happens. So, when, when we set upon this idea of doing two podcast episodes to cover the, our best and most favorite episodes of king and the worst parts of king i I tried making up a list of like his different movies and tv shows and just highlighting the ones i'd seen that i hadn't seen if i thought they were good if i thought they were bad and i'm I'm actually pretty surprised looking back at that list if you were to chop out like the 18 children of the corn sequels the balance in my mind is pretty even between good and bad like uh, i'll go through the list oh hey that was a good movie 
Oh, but then there's Dreamcatcher. Okay, that was pretty bad. But hey, there's Gerald's game. That's pretty good. Oh, but then there's the Lawnmower Man. It's odd. King's batting average in movies is eerily similar to his batting average with books. It's very good, very bad, and a lot of fine in between. <laughs> but I like the, the same ratio. It's so It's so weird. I think, yeah, and on my list, it really only is tipped towards the bad because so many of his films came out, had notoriety, and then pumped out like two or three not good at all sequels. Even if the original wasn't good, it would tend to get one or two extras. So you just get a line of things that are ugh, not great. I feel like you can't count the sequels, though, because right. most of the time they're just a name only. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, hell. Can we really say The Mangler 2 or The Mangler Reborn <laughs> drew any inspiration from Stephen King's works? I haven't seen those two, so I'm guessing no. I could be wrong. The Mangler itself was inspired by like a two-page long short story about a, you know, a killer laundry press. And that got somehow stretched into like an hour 40 movie. I also don't think they understood The Mangler short story at all. <laughs> Cody, I think this movie has been haunting you for, like, the past three years. So can you just talk to our audience about The Mangler, a movie made by horror royalty several times over? Toby Hooper took this one. It's... Yeah. I was hoping for more of a funhouse instead of gotten eaten alive. There's, There is, in fact, in this movie, a giant laundry press that'll just eat people up. It happens. The, the Mangler itself is evil and possessed, but they, they expand the movie version in every way they can. Like, now there's an evil mill owner who has, like, metal legs. <laughs> Played by who? Robert England himself is wearing old man makeup and has, like, robot legs. This movie should be good. A it Stephen King movie directed by Toby Hooper starring fucking Freddy Krueger as an evil mill owner who's part cyborg. Yeah, like all the pieces are there. Uh, and, and oh God, so there's a, a, a cop who's investigating people being killed by this machine because it just keeps eating people up. And his like next door neighbor best friend happens to know about the occult. And so they try and exercise the demons from... <laughs> the mangler and it doesn't work the mangler comes to life like it, it just it uproots itself from the steam room and it chases the people <laughs> through the factory with trying to eat them it's it's like a miyazaki movie like all of what i'm describing sounds kind of entertaining i know it is not i don't i don't know how they managed to make something that is so insane but so unmemorable i have listed all the things of that movie i remember like, there, this is a full hour and a half long movie. I don't remember more than what I've said. I don't remember how they win. Maybe the Mangler becomes a fridge at the end. I don't know. It's it's all blurred. I don't understand how you can make something that insane and that unmemorable at the same time. It, it boggles me. And there's a Mangler 2 and the Mangler Reborn. I don't know how that's a trilogy. It, it, <laughs> I'm astounded. I think virtual reality gets involved at some point. Like, it goes into Lawnmower Man territory. The Mangler Online. Oh, if only there was a crossover. They were making Mangler movies for 10 years. The first one was 1995, then 2002, and the last one was 2005, people. Just so oh they can God. slap Stephen King on the box art somewhere. So <laughs> <laughs> all it has going for it. Also, when you're describing that plot, Mike, doesn't this sound like a really, really bad Harry Damore story? Yeah, 
Like, this is what Clive would write just to, like, get a paycheck that week. <laughs> this is like uh, he if... He fights uh, the laundry press, I don't know. If Harry starred in a series of Penny Dreadfuls in, like, the turn of the century. <laughs> That's what's always fascinated me about the Mangler. Like, on paper, like, I get it. Okay, there's people working at this mill. There's a machine that eats the workers. Like, it's a capitalism thing. Okay, I can see you making that a horror movie. Why is it like a neo-noir murder mystery? <laughs> no Why didn't they understand the story wasn't serious? Why did that occur to no one? I mean, judging by what they put into that movie, they must have known. You don't put Robert England in as like the steampunk slave owner as, for no reason if you think it's a serious movie. Something went wrong somewhere. I'm like existentially distraught thinking about the mangler. <laughs> I know, it happens to me, too. I can't explain it. It's like a movie that changed course halfway through, but instead of, like, a producer stepping in or something, every single person on set decided to make a different movie. <laughs> and a uh, little, little tidbit, actually directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> ah, that explains the wonder. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just imagining that's why E.T. is so short. If you got in the mangler and just <laughs> squishing down like a gummy bear. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jamie, was that your ET? Yes. That was your weird ET impression. That's after he's been the mangler. Okay, that was what I was going to ask. Like, is that ET going through the mangler or ET post mangler or pre mangler? <laughs> what phase of mangler was that ET? <laughs> I, I just imagine he, at this point he's like accordioned, like in an old cartoon. <laughs> like he hasn't reconstituted himself into his new bescrunched body. Oh god, he just blows on his giant glowing finger and he oh. stretches himself right back up to normal height. He's like seven foot tall. Oh god, he's not Judge Doom. <laughs> what a freak. <laughs> yeah, fuck that E.T. I'm glad you were eaten by Hold capitalism. Hold on, I'm, I'm sure I've told the story before. I told you about my experience in Universal Studios with E.T., right? <laughs> Enlighten me. So, so as a kid, my family and I took a trip down to Florida, and we stopped for one day at Universal Studios. We only had one day there, so we had to skip the Islands of Adventure, which is fine. I'm not huge on big, scary rides, uh, I, but I wanted to see all the cool stuff in Universal Studios, like the Jaws ride or the Back to the Future ride. They just put in the Men in Black ride. The one I really wanted was King Kong, the ride. Luckily, we're there in a January when no one else is around, even Universal Studios, because it was too cold. It was like 50 degrees, so no one else was there. We left in the middle of a snowstorm and it was 10, so it was like paradise to us. We hit rides left and right, got like a high score on the Men in Black shooting ride. We, we saw everything but two rides. We got to the end of the park day, and there was a choice. We could either go to E.T. the ride... Or we could go to King Kong, the ride. Oh, no. We only had time for one. Oh, no. And my mom speaks up and goes, you know, I just really want to go on the E.T. ride. And it's like my mom has said nothing all day. She just put up with all this bullshit. I'm pretty sure she hated the uh, Back to the Future ride because it just like gave her motion sickness. I don't think she enjoyed herself on the Jaws ride. Maybe she did. I don't remember. I was having a blast. But it's like, ah, my parents took me all the way down to Universal Studios. I'm not going to be like, no, Mom, we're going on the King Kong ride. That's why you split up. We should have. I was a child. I was dumb. So we, we went on the E.T. ride, 
and it's it's terrible. They they I don't know. Have you guys ever done the ET ride? I skipped it. You should have never it's been. Very boring. Uh, you just kind of ride through moments from ET the movie. ET needs to get on a spaceship and go home. You're like on fake bicycles that can lift in the air occasionally, but they move very slowly. This is this is a ride for people that do not want to be excited. <laughs> all the animatronics were just old and not interesting at all. It just no part of it was fun. So we hit the end of that, had to leave, didn't get to King Kong, and I always told myself, "Well, I'll get back, I'll get back." And I think like a year or two later, that's when they had that fire and it destroyed like all of the 1976 King Kong ride. So now it's it's gone forever. They replaced it with the uh, Peter Jackson CGI King Kong, which is very cool, but it's it's not the same, and I'll always be a little bitter I didn't get to go on that one stupid ride. I just want to state, I've I've been on King Kong. Aww. It's everything you wish it was, Cody, <laughs> and you'll never experience it because it's dead now. It's replaced by CGI bullshit. When I went on that ride, the ride broke, but I got past the King Kong part of the ride, so that worked out. It was on the Fast and the Furious portion. And then it broke, and they just kind of, like, wheeled us out, like, oh, sorry, folks, you waited in line for two hours for nothing. Get out of here. You know what didn't break? The original King Kong ride I was on. I did get to go see the new Harry Potter land, though, so. Ah, uh, fuck cool. you. Fine, you win. It was very magical. Why are we competing? There were, there were people that came out holding frogs, and they sang songs. I don't know why. <laughs> Cody, was this just your backyard? No. These were big frogs. Was it? Oh, no. I've been here all along! Turns out you've never left your house, ever. That would explain all the agoraphobia. You were born in the bathtub, and that's where you've been. Yeah, no, that makes a certain amount of sense. I can, I can see it. <laughs> I like Tom Thumb, Cody. <laughs> <We invent. laughs> I live in your vents! Uh, <laughs> I don't know how I pay rent either! Oh! <laughs> that's the real mystery. Why Why are my utilities still on? I can't pay those. Cody I don't leave the house. Cody around our vents like Hugo. <laughs> Feed me my fish heads, pals! And if you take anything away from the mangler, let it be that. Fuck E.T. That's, that's what I'm trying to get at here. Let's get past the mangler. Oh, boy. What are, what are some of your guys' Stephen King bugaboos? I think that we all share a similar childhood memory of being extremely excited for Stephen King's The Langoliers. Of course we were about to talk about the same exact thing. <laughs> good, good. As someone who hasn't actually seen The Langoliers, explain it to me. Please ruin my excitement for this project. You don't know about The Langoliers, Cody, oh my god. I, I do not. I've, I've stayed pure. Throw out this podcast, we're about to watch four hours of awful. That's not specific enough. That could be the Tommy Knockers. That could be two thirds of the stand. That, that the Tommy Knockers is better in comparison. Yeah. I disagree. But we'll, <laughs> well, okay, you got me there. <laughs> All right, no, please explain to me what I'm missing with the Langoliers. What what is the basic plot? Is this the one with the airplane, or is that the Tommy Knockers? Yes. So the Langoliers opens with a bunch of people on an airplane uh, reaching their destination at the airport, walking out, and Everyone is gone, and time seems to have stopped. Dun, dun, dun. That's all that happens for like 17 hours. Oh, food is also not stale, but not fresh. <laughs> As is water. There are lengthy conversations about the water and the food being not quite right. Basically, this is a 20-minute Twilight Zone episode world builded into a miniseries. <laughs> Take 
the most uninteresting series of characters. And then imagine inviting them into your home four nights in a row to just talk to each other at you. About how confused they are about what's going on in this airport. So it's it's like the terminal. They're just stuck in the actual airport. Yep. All right. It's like imagine a zombie movie without the zombies. Okay. Like the same tone and setting of a zombie movie, but they're just hanging out in a building. Terrifying. Just doing stuff, trying to figure out what to do in their situation. How they solve this could have been wrapped up in about 15 minutes. Yeah, it turns out they just go back inside the plane. Oh my god, that's it? <laughs> no, I'm mad because I... I what this is four come out? hours into it. I had an assignment in middle school where they told us, okay, we want you to write a radio play. And everyone had to pick like a style of radio play, like an old-timey comedy or crime thing. And I did Twilight Zone. And that was essentially my story from like middle school. What? Seriously? There was an airplane that lands, but it lands in the wrong time. And the people are very confused when they touch ground. And in the end of the episode, they just get back in the plane and fly the opposite direction and time fixes itself. Because I had 20 minutes to think this up. It's like an improv kind of assignment. That is 100% how they get back home. They just, because they, remember they fly through the Aurora Borealis? Yeah, they essentially fly through the ribbon from Star Trek. (laughs) And then they just fly backwards through it. And that gets them home. Okay, so I either somehow ripped off Stephen King's story, he ripped off mine, or they're just both very bad stories that should not have been made. <laughs> I think that's just what happens whenever you shit post a story out of thin <laughs> in a well, very that's, short that's amount like of time. I said, I had like one class period to think up the story. We were supposed to do it like on the spot and then present the next day. And we were supposed to take time outside of class. So it was like, fuck, how would a Twilight Zone story go? I don't know, the plane goes backwards. It's very paper ba- uh, like airport paperback novel. So, so what what are the Langoliers? Okay, so this is this is the most bullshit thing about the entire fucking miniseries. Because when you're a kid, you're sitting there in such like rock hard anticipation. I know I was a child, but rock hard anticipation <laughs> for the Langoliers. Like, what what are these things in the title? They keep getting talked about. They're bu- they're being built up. A they only show up in about the last what ten minutes, briefly <laughs> of a four hour series. You get 10 minutes of whatever these things are. And they are the worst late 90s, low-budget CGI you've ever seen. And they look kind of like Pac-Man. But they're meatballs. Yeah. (laughs) They're Pac-Man meatballs with razor-sharp teeth that move like a chainsaw. They spin, like, uh, they had, like, a geometry set up for the computer whenever they were doing the effects, so it was just an easy plug-in. You just turn that on, and it just spins it like a fucking late-90s PC game. They look like Pac-Man if Pac-Man had no skin. These would eventually be parodied in an episode of Rick and Morty, the one with uh, Jordan Peele as the time cop. That's oh. that's what that design is. It's just okay. that with arms and legs. <laughs> what? What? I'm, I'm very confused. How did they even play into the plot? Okay. <laughs> We, we're gonna have to 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 walk this back a little Ooh, bit. Yeah. We got to do some world building. Our, so, okay, I'm not gonna be here four hours, am I? <laughs> Paint a word picture. <laughs> so, uh, in addition to a popular science fiction writer who provides all the exposition, 
<laughs> and a dashing Australian pilot with a mullet who is like our action hero. One of the main characters is a blind girl with psychic <laughs> abilities because we are fully in Stephen King's, like, the back of his mind. This is like a Stephen King parody movie, but it's real. Like, it's an actual Stephen King it's story. It's like Dark Place. Yes. I forget, doesn't she, like, have this weird daredevil vision she goes into where, like, she yeah. can see monsters and stuff? Yeah, it's like she can hear them coming because she keeps describing they sound like Rice Krispies. Yes, Rice Krispies is said dramatically so many times in this. So she knows that the Langoliers are coming because of her shine, which catches the ire of the greatest bad Stephen <laughs> King character in his entire <laughs> oeuvre, Mr. Toomey. Oh, Mr. Toomey. Mr. Toomey. So Mr. Toomey is an 80s businessman who's having a nervous breakdown. Well, the if most. If I taste right, I can understand. <laughs> I, th I think that's actually a scene. I'm just him freaking out over food. But uh, he is having the most cartoon character nervous breakdown I've ever seen. Like, he is so obsessed with going to the meeting he was on his way to that, like, he's constantly endangering everybody else in the airport. Like, he is psychotically obsessed with going to a meeting so that he can yell at everybody. Like, he has this big network speech he goes into in a fantasy <laughs> sequence. Oh, his fantasies are something to behold. He also has a character trait that I've been obsessed with since I was a child, which is he tears napkins <laughs> a long way slowly while kind of just covered in sweat and looking distraught. I used to do that all the time and as so a did kid. I. I still do it sometimes. <laughs> So, Mr. Toomey, in his fucking revenge quest to yell at his bosses, becomes the arch enemy of the psychic little girl because the Langoliers... <laughs> because the Langoliers are what his parents called the monsters who would get him if he steps out of the big picture. Because this dude, like, has this weird Harry Osborne thing going on where, like, he has super villain parents that have some kind of scheme he's supposed to be a part of. It's never made clear, I don't think. So you just have this guy tearing napkins and screaming, the big picture! I have to be part of the big picture! <laughs> and telling everyone that the Langoliers are going to get them. So yeah, the Langoliers are unrelated to the thing they're named after. Stephen King does this a lot, especially in this era. Uh, I, I just had to look up a picture of them. I'm now on the Monster Wiki, and uh, <laughs> the description here I like. They are depicted as ravenous furballs with no legs and three mandibles. Their only form of substance would appear to be time. As time passes, <laughs> they devour the Same. universe. <laughs> I can't say that's inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> they devour the universe that is left behind. The only way to come into contact with one is by being asleep as you pass through a time rift. I like how they're very certain about that part. <laughs> like, the only way you can bump into one is if you fall asleep during a time rift. Oh, this but is clearly not sure laid what they out. Eat. They might eat time. Like, for some reason, that part isn't clear in the Monster Wiki. They're iffy there. But the rest, they know. 
Oh, uh, everything else is clearly laid out through hours and hours of science talk. The Langoliers themselves just eat the screen like it's an, a 90s screensaver. Like they go, om, nom, nom, and then parts of the screen are replaced with darkness. Yeah, just a it's void. that cheap just, of an effect. Just empty void. And I, I will say, as a sci-fi idea, not terrible. Like, it's kind of like a heavy metal story. Like, oh, see the cleanup crew that cleans up one second behind you. Yeah. But cool concept. Why was any of this done this way for any reason? Can we talk about Stephen King's cameo? Is he one of the Langoliers? Oh, I watch occasionally this scene just by itself. Um, It's right before the Langoliers show up. It's Mr. Toomey is on the tarmac underneath the plane. He won't get in. Everybody's trying to leave. And he's having a vision of the boardroom meeting. And everyone's, like, scolding him and shit. And Stephen King plays, like, this demonic, like, CEO. Like, he's... Shot like he's 10 feet tall. It's fucking incredible. <laughs> I think it goes into how the Langoliers are going to get him. It's my favorite Stephen King cameo of all time. Look out, it's King Man. <laughs> Turns out he was the man in black all along. <gasps> God, oh, that really branches us out. We could follow that reference into talking about the Dark Tower. Or you could tell us about the Tommyknockers. Because you said that was somehow worse than the Langoliers. And that sounded really awful. Now... For my own sanity, I watched the uh, two-hour movie cut of the Tommyknockers that was released on uh, VHS, which is easier to swallow than the miniseries, but somehow worse. So the plot of the Tommyknockers is a very good one. There's a couple in a small town in Maine. Of course. That uncover a big hunk of metal sticking out of the ground in the woods outside their home. And they begin digging it up, like slowly throughout the story. And the more they dig it up, the more the people in the surrounding town begin to develop psychic abilities, which manifest in various ways. Like it's an interesting idea. Like it's slowly revealed that there's an alien presence and that they're digging up a spaceship. Like, the powers manifest in more malevolent ways and start making the townspeople inhuman. And uh, it's all a very big uh, metaphor for addiction. And all that sounds like a perfectly fine Stephen King story, except literally every single thing in this is bad. <laughs> very much like the Langoliers, the Tommyknockers plays as a parody of the dark ages of Stephen King, like whenever uh, his addiction had reached its peak and he was just churning out book after book after book that all read like it was written in a Coke binge. And that is uh, very faithfully represented in the Tommyknockers movie, which somehow stars Jimmy Smith's playing the Stephen King stand in. Like he is an alcohol, a, I don't think he's an alcoholic writer specifically. He's an alcoholic poet because Jimmy Smith <laughs> delivers dramatic poetry in this movie. The humanity. <laughs> he is the ugliest thing in this film because written all over him is how Stephen King saw himself at the time. Because he goes over this in 
great detail uh, in his book on writing. His constant refrain, like the one thing that he would use to justify this was what he called his Hemingway excuse, which was, yeah, I have addictions, but it's only because I'm a writer and I'm sensitive to all the horrors of the world and I have to be an addict in order to cope with that. Like, I'm like a psychic taking drugs to just ease the pain that I'm taking in. And that's the entire character arc of Jimmy Smith's. Like, despite this story being all about addiction, that's projected on every single other character because he's the only one who's immune to the alien's influence. Uh, there's a scene which is cut out of the theatrical version, so I actually flipped through the miniseries to watch this again <laughs> because it's outstanding. Where Jimmy Smits is at a party filled with big wigs and sees an 80s businessman say something uh, sarcastic about nuclear power and the, the hippies shutting it down. And Jimmy Smits takes a drink, looks over his shoulder and says, You know they roasted children at Chernobyl. <laughs> and then gives this gigantic speech about the darkness of the world. And how it's poisoned his soul. And then he stumbles out of a window. <laughs> Exit left, pursued by a bear. And then the Death Star fires, and it all explodes. <laughs> and then he flies across the screen, burning like Dark Man. <laughs> I have decided to become the Rocketeer. Goes <laughs> right out the window, straight to the blimp. So yeah, it's those parts of the film are genuinely hard to watch, because... It's seeing the worst part of an author who has worn his inner self on his sleeve so much show you the darkest side of him, but not be self-aware about it. Because this was also, like, I feel one of the last hurrahs of Stephen King's obsession with small-town local yokels. You see that so much in early King, especially in, like, Carrie and Salem's Lot. This... Anger. Like, Geek makes no secret. He was very, very angry to spend as many years as he did in a small town that was deeply conservative, knowing that he's the only intellectual around who still gets hassled about his long hair like it's the 60s. Mike, is this and... a bridge into Needful Things? <laughs> this is kind of the plot of Needful Things, yeah. Or sometimes they come back, or several things, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, it's never at its most vicious than it is in the Tommyknockers. Like, other than Smith's girlfriend, the uh, tragic leader of the controlled townspeople, there's not a single like decent person in the story. Like, there's her and an old grandpa who is like ultimate Stephen King grandpa. <laughs> like, he teaches kids magic tricks and shit. <laughs> He talks with a heavy, heavy accent, correct? Oh, yeah. He's he's one of those Stephen King guys. Hey, Hoss. When it comes to yokels in Stephen King stories, it is always like the lovable old man who gets the fair pass. Like the grandpa role is normally like, oh, no, that guy's he's he's the one. OK, one. Yeah, you can be an old man or you can be a beautiful small town school teacher or a young boy who knows that something's up around here. Those are kind of uh, subverted by needful things. I mean, at least in the book, I haven't seen the show. The first kid to start fucking everything up is just, uh, 
would otherwise be the hero of a King story. Like he's just a little boy who falls into uh, Mr. Gaunt's hands and starts doing evil tricks for a baseball card. Uh, and then the school teacher also falls prey to the evil store owner's wiles. That, that's neat. I don't know if that executes <laughs> well, because I haven't finished the book because it's like 800 goddamn pages long. I don't know if it works at all in the miniseries. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's the finale to Castle Rock. and to throw it all away. They really are pulling a lot of Castle Rock, the show, both seasons from Needful Things. I'm amazed as I read through that book how much they're just cribbing from that story. Because they know nobody's going to go back and read Needful Things. And it's a good concept that's just... It's not like Mr. Gaunt himself is being pulled out. So, like, the plot itself, not so much. But all of, like, the characters and some of the side events and stuff really just seem like, oh, fuck, fair game, throw it to Hulu. The best version of Needful Things was Rick and Morty. I agree. That was the best adaption of Needful Things. Uh, going back to the Tommyknockers for just a moment, because I have to get this out. So... This is probably the definitive Stephen King nursery rhyme movie. Because like with the Langoliers, the aliens are called the Tommyknockers for no other reason than that's a nursery rhyme a character knows. It is hilarious hearing Jimmy Smith say, They're controlling you, your goddamn Tommyknockers! (laughs) While inside the cockpit of an alien spaceship. It just sounds like he's talking about tits. It really does. <laughs> Tits are like engorged testicles. They're like diseased. Like that's why they're engorged. Oh, those are totally Tommy knockers. A pair of Tommy knockers you have on you. <laughs> I'm looking at Tommy knockers online right now, and I'm very concerned what I'm going to get. You should. It's nothing but swollen testicles. Weird. <laughs> and they they commit to the nursery rhyme thing. Like one of the greatest moments in that thing is the small town good boy who has been taught magic tricks through Mm. alien telepathy. Because everybody in the town is, like, building science fiction devices. Like, one lady has a ray gun that does the pew, 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 and vaporizes people. It's hilarious. (laughs) So he's built a machine. He's put his little brother inside at a birthday party. And he has, like, the little magician's cape and top hat and everything, the little stick. And he leans in as the music builds dramatically and says, I don't know that you can, because I learned this trick from the Tommyknocker man. And then the kid disappears. <laughs> so, I just, I just looked up Tommyknockers, and there's there's like a French edition of the book that the cover appears to be a very fat, possessed Santa Claus holding two severed heads. Is... Is that part of the Tommyknockers? No, but I want to see the version that has that. Because there's much like... more entertaining. I found multiple covers, like in French, that just have like a Santa holding severed heads. Les Tommyknockers, one. <laughs> <laughs> Les Knocker. Also, fun a little tidbit, of course. Uh, the Tommyknockers was written by the dude who co-wrote part one of the It miniseries. Ah. I can easily see that yeah the dialogue is very similar some people have what's the fucking line some people have no class some people have janitors for parents that's it that's it <laughs> fucking written by aliens you take visit you sweat you take a shower got it <laughs> i really like that the tommy knockers just have like the xenomorph shaped head oh they look terrible Oh, this is I mean, rough. it is amazing seeing 
Jimmy Smith's punch a fucking xenomorph in the face. <laughs> then throw a dead alien out of the captain's chair, screaming, oh! <laughs> then he sits into Cerebro, essentially, and flies the spaceship into the sun while reading poetry. <laughs> Credits. Okay, I know we're talking about Jimmy Smith's life, but can we go back to talking about the fucking movie, Jamie? Jesus, stay on topic. It's not my fault being roasted alive by the sun is a recurring feature in Jimmy Smith's life. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound rough, and I probably will not be committing four hours of my life to it. You say that now, but... I mean, I did buy The Stand and watch that over six hours, and I was very tempted to go back and rewatch all the commentaries on, so... You know, I make bad choices. Or you just want one of the commentaries to just explain how. I want one of the commentaries to explain everything that's going on with Randall Flagg in that series. <laughs> I love that Randall Flagg so much. I think is trying to do a Roddy Piper thing. I don't Very much it's so. It's entirely Roddy Piper. Like yeah, the look it's 100% Roddy Piper. It's gotta be. Also, I want to make it very... occasionally transforms into a demon. Just, just oh, his buffy. Yeah, he's just a buffy vampire. <laughs> <laughs> why is why is the man in black just so goddamn hard to do on film? He's just a dude. <laughs> he's just a big scary dude. That's if I can jump into the dark tower for a bit here. I, I rewatched that last night, and it's a very frustrating experience because they hired a cinematographer who knows his shit. Like the DP on that movie rocks it. And there's just nothing to support something that looks that fine. The cast, too, it's like, oh, man. Ah, what a what a waste. That is a movie made by producers. Uh, Matthew McConaughey is in there just doing the worst man in black you can imagine. <laughs> At one point, he flat just tells Roland, like, you've always been immune to my magics, Roland. <laughs> but not for long. I have been obsessed with that for the longest time. Matthew McConaughey, dressed in black, just flaunting his wrist and going, ah, oh, my magics. My magics. Yeah, he, he spends the movie, they give him the superpower in, in the movie of just being able to suggest something to someone and they do it. Like, he walks by a little girl with her mom who's eating ice cream and he just says, hate! And then she gets a look in her eye and, like, you can tell she's gonna raise hell. Uh, he tells two other people in a restaurant to fight each other to death and then everyone else to enjoy it, and they do. That's his superpower. Like, whatever he says, you will do. Now... <sighs> Randall Flagg is supernatural in the Dark Tower books. That's that's not up for debate, I would say. But here it's just like he's an actual goddamn full-blown wizard, and I don't understand why he can't just resolve all the problems he has with magic. I am very, very confused by that version of the Man in Black. That, like we said, not difficult character. Oh, he can also light people on fire. Like, if he, if he says burn and waves his hand over you, you will just incinerate yourself. So he's just God. Kinda, yeah, except for with Roland, because his magics doesn't work on him, which is never explained as far as I know. Like, it, Roland is just magically immune to the man in black's magic. Keep in and, mind, this is just Randall Flagg, essentially, so his thing in the books is just being a bad dude who can't die. <laughs> who can't die and pops up at random spots, so it feels like he's either fast-moving, like kind of teleporting through seams and galaxies, or, like, he has a hand up to kind of mess around with timelines. He's a dick. Like, that's Randall Flagg's he's, he's thing. Randall Flagg's yeah. thing is being the cosmic asshole. Yes. And in this version, like, he kind of, like, 
Matthew McConaughey says his lines with like zero emotion. Like it's all mm, my magics. And a lisp, apparently. I should I should backtrack a little. Now you would assume if you were doing the Dark Tower, Stephen King's like Magnum Opus is gigantic, several thousand page, multi decade <laughs> book series. The first scene you would assume of that adaptation would be the man in black fled and the gunslinger followed. It would it would be that, right? You'd assume that would be the first thing you would put on film, right? Some things are just natural. They don't do that. They they about halfway through the movie, a psychic says that line when she is viewing someone's mind. But they they don't start the movie with that. That that really is the canary in the coal mine that tells you everything about the project. Like you mess up a detail that small yet that important. It should tell you you're in trouble. And especially the way they do start it, they jump to the very end of the book series. If, if Part of the thing here is, we've got seven main books in the series, and they did a couple of offshoots and comic prequels and all that kind of stuff. If you boil it all down, the Dark Tower has a fairly straightforward bad guy plot, and then there's just a whole ton of elaboration on the side and different stories that kind of fill this thing out and make it a giant mythical quest. And the movie goes, we have 90 minutes. We have to prune everything that makes this interesting. Uh, bad guy is kidnapping people with a shine. He's going to use them to knock down a magic tower that supports all life in the universe. Go. That's, that's, they, they boil down all of those books into that thesis statement. And it just drives me bananas because it's, it's so boring that way. I feel like the biggest mistake you can make in any Stephen King adaptation is boil it down to the plot. And even more frustrating... If you're a fan of the book series and you're okay with them just saying, okay, fuck it, you know all this stuff. Let's just do one movie version to wrap things up and have this service like a quasi-sequel end cap to the entire franchise. You would at least want Roland to be the Roland you know from the books. And, and the character version we get here is a man who doesn't want to be a gunslinger and has given up his quest for the Dark Tower. You know, those two defining character traits that would never happen in the books. It's it's such a betrayal of the source material. It is amazing. I love how this is a Dark Tower introductory movie that's also trying to be the Dark Knight Returns for Roland, who we haven't met yet. Yes. So, folks at home, if you have not read the Dark Tower... Oh, God. Now I'm going to be the one who just summarized it in, like, 30 seconds. The Dark Tower is this giant structure... That holds together all of the universes, all the multi-universes out there are held together by this one spiritual building that exists outside of time. Roland comes from a line of specially trained kind of knights who use guns. They're gunslingers. And it's part of his job to seek the Dark Tower. It's like all he cares about. He is single-minded. Basically, the Terminator made real. He is incredibly skilled at everything. And it's his goal to get to the Dark Tower and save it from the people that are trying to destroy it. Randall Flagg is the bad guy who wants to destroy it because he's basically the world's biggest asshole. And the movie boils all this down to Roland refuses the call to help people. His new friend Jake gets captured, so he has to shoot a bunch of guys to get back to Jake. And then he has a face-off with the man in black where he learns his lesson. He just needed to shoot harder all along. That's why he couldn't kill him. The final gunfight is the man in black standing on one end of a portal, Roland standing on the other. Roland starts firing his guns at the Man in Black. The Man in Black can catch his bullets. He's so fast. He just catches Roland's bullets. Uh, and then occasionally he'll, like, use mind powers to pick up steel girders and throw them at Roland or bits of glass and throw them at Roland. Uh, Roland eventually has 
both the guns knocked out of his hands. He repeats his mantra, I don't shoot with my eyes, I shoot with my heart. And he has a moment where he realizes, wait, I've been firing directly at the bad guy. What if I shoot one bullet at him and another bullet at a wall? The second bullet will ricochet off the wall and hit the first bullet, and the man in black will miss the bullet because it changes trajectory at the last second, and it'll kill him. For that... that that is how the biggest bad dude in all of Stephen King's mythology is taken out in this movie. Roland fires two bullets that have an intersecting path, a trajectory. And this surprises the man in black, who is so fast, he has been literally yanking bullets out of the air and is so magically strong. After he yanks those bullets out of the air, he can throw them back at Roland like he is a gun. <laughs> what I love is... Can you imagine reading those books and coming away with the thought, what Roland really needs as his cathartic hero moment is shooting his guns. He just has to shoot harder. That, that thing that weighs heavily on Roland's soul, that entire series. <laughs> like, no, I just need to kill more people. That's it. Just kill harder. It's fascinating to watch something that so completely misses the point of its source material, or disregards it entirely. It's essentially uh, that Dark is Rising movie, The Seeker. Like, what they did to that is what they did to The Dark Tower, essentially. So and every time I watch that, I am just so, so sad. I am still incredulous that we're getting an Amazon Dark Tower series. I, had, I really never thought they would go through with it. And it's my last hope now that we're ever going to get to see the series done properly. That was, I think that was just that director's consolation prize for putting up with that production. I think he was quoted as saying, like, okay, we're just going to do the books this time. He said that while promoting the movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have never seen everyone involved just nope out of a movie that's not released yet that fast. I was like fucking Bill Cosby and Leonard Part 6. It's I can't recommend it in any way. It's not a fun action movie. Uh, like the sci-fi fantasy twists aren't really developed or done in an exciting way. It basically just looks pretty. That's that's about it. And boy, does that bum me out considering the material there. If they had done any one of those books by itself, would have been amazing. Probably flawed as all hell, but still amazing. This is just boring. Like, could you imagine the world where they just did the first book, The Gunslinger, where it's an acid western of Roland just walking through a chemical wasteland <laughs> with mutants popping up that he has to shoot? It's all deeply sexual. It's like a fucking Jim Jarmusch movie. Bring the Ron Howard version that almost got made. Yeah. That was just like a year too ahead of its time. Like if it was just, they announced it like a year later, it would have been perfect. Streaming wasn't quite a thing yet. Like they just couldn't quite get their, no one could quite get their heads around it. Well, that was the big problem because he wanted to do it as like a trilogy that had miniseries in between the segments to fill it in. Yeah. Which is honestly a great approach for something like this, and it would tie in perfectly. It, it's basically like what they're doing now with all the Marvel shows. Yeah. Like, hey, these will pad out things. You watch these, and it gets you prepped for Doctor Strange 2, and it's all connected. And you're right. If if he was pitching that series now, it'd probably go over much easier for him instead of spending like five years in development hell. And I remember whenever that was first being talked about, I was very nervous about the idea of Ron Howard doing The Dark Tower because it really didn't seem in his wheelhouse but after seeing solo like no ron howard can totally do a fantasy western adventure like that yeah. that's totally something he's capable of i would have killed to have seen that howard is very underrated that dude uh, he's got some chops look at the grinch his horror oh. movie <laughs> <laughs> his nihilistic horror movie <sighs> all right 
we have a lot more King to get through. But we're going we're gonna to do this lightning round style. I'm going to throw out a couple of King movies. Gut reaction, good or bad? Let me know. Uh, Carrie, 1976. We covered that. What about Carrie 2013? We covered that, too, by not talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> what about Cat's Eye, 1985? Mixed back? Uh, I don't think Creepshow... Yeah, what, what about Creepshow 2? Everyone loves Creepshow 1. Uh, thanks for the ride, lady? I like the raft. The raft's pretty good. Jamie, are we in a game show? <laughs> I am slaying your reactions. Tell me about Firestarter right now, 1984. Love Firestarter. I love the version of Firestarter we almost got. <laughs> oh, the like, one they talk about in Fango? John Carpenter's Firestarter would have been the greatest Stephen King movie ever made. Oh, man. I should make it clear. I don't think Firestarter is a good movie. I'm just saying I love Firestarter. Firestarter's got some good stuff in it, at least. Jamie, that's how I feel about Graveyard Shift. I can't tell you it's a good movie, but it's one I enjoy. Graveyard Shift's fucking awesome. It's terrible, but it's fucking awesome. <laughs> What's great about Graveyard Shift, though, is the only one who's aware of anything about what Graveyard Shift is, is Dorf. And Dorf fucking goes for it. I think Dorf's just <laughs> directing himself and writing his own role as he goes. He's the only one self-aware. <laughs> And I, I really love the uh, monster they cooked up for that one. That horrible, like, rat-bat Oh, it's thing. spectacular. Oh, so cool. <laughs> but enough about Graveyard Shift. Um, I skipped over one because I have a feeling there's strong reactions here. 2003's Dreamcatcher. Dreamcatcher is one of my favorite movies ever made. Can I say that? Is that uh, hyperbole? You, you can, but you have to defend that statement if you're going to throw it out there. No, I can't defend it. <laughs> Dreamcatcher is a film that could only have been brought to us by one of the greatest living screenwriters of our time, Lawrence Kasdan. Every time you guys have talked to me about Dreamcatcher, you have made it sound like it is the equivalent of shoving needles into your eyes. And now you're telling me it's the best thing? I could have picked up a copy like two weeks ago at Best Buy for six bucks and I held off. Oh, it's both at the same time. And what's great is the book and the movie are magnificently terrible in polar opposite ways. <laughs> like, it's a, it's like a magic trick. Like, why is just the name Dreamcatcher just a brand that meets a specific type of terrible and nothing else? What's awesome is, is the, the movie fixes some things, but also makes it worse somehow. <laughs> so if you could merge these two together in like a Dragon Ball Z fusion dance, you might have something that's pretty good? No. No, no. no Ev everything about Dreamcatcher is bad from the bottom up, both the book and the, the movie. I talked earlier about Tommyknockers being the worst personification of Ugly King. Dreamcatcher is the personification of Dumb King writing. Like, it is a movie about a group of friends on a hunting trip in Maine who, while reminiscing about the psychic powers they received from their mentally challenged friend, who was psychic because it's a Stephen King novel, stumble onto an alien invasion made by chestburster knockoffs that come out of your butthole instead of your chest, which are called the shit weasels, and you know they're coming by the sound of loud, piercing flatulence. 
Tell me more about these shit weasels. It's like every bad thing about Stephen King at once. Like every weird fixation he has just put out into the world with no filter. (laughs) The book has so many paragraphs about different types of farts. So Stephen King wrote Dreamcatcher while in the hospital fucked up on pain meds. And all he really has is a window of the world is a television. So he's just watching things, right? Which explains why the aliens are called Ripley's. Morgan Freeman's character in the movie is, is of course, named after the character from Apocalypse Now. They did change it from Kurtz to Curtis for the movie. That's true. That's for true. no reason. Because <laughs> um, that was going a little too far, even for the makers of the Dreamcatcher film. Um, it's also kind of just the thing in some ways. Um, there's chest yeah. bursters. There's, it's just a series of movie things he probably just had playing on in the background. And then him laughing about farts, but also taking it very seriously. <laughs> King, after the book was written, said, straight-faced, he wanted to do for farting what Jaws did for the ocean and Psycho did for showers. That's an uphill battle. Uh, why, why, why was the story called Dreamcatcher? What's the significance? No reason. Okay, I should have, I should have. Just there's a Dreamcatcher hanging in the cabin they stay at. And in the movie, they, like, ADR a line about somebody describing the aliens as, like, a dream catcher or something. No, they describe uh, Duddits as their dream catcher in, like, an ADR line to try to explain it. What was the name originally of the book, Jamie? Cancer. Uh, Stephen King changed it because Tabitha refused to call it Cancer and would just call it that one about the shit weasels. So, to keep oh. his wife from being annoyed, he dreamcatcher for no reason. Alright, one. Calling it that one about the shit weasels sounds like it's a friend's entry gone horribly awry, which I approve of. <laughs> like, I'm okay with that. Two. Still has Joey P is... on Monica. <laughs> you were thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Two. Calling a book Cancer, Stephen King's Cancer... Could you imagine the sales? That would have been like, hey, we took two really scary things and we put them together. People would have lined up around the block for that. Dreamcatcher? Mm. I do understand Tabitha King's logic there. Like, I don't want to go to the store and just see Stephen King's cancer lining the aisles. Also, probably smart she did that for him, or else Stephen King would have had to do, like, a publicity tour and for, like, three months do nothing but talk about cancer. And go pick up cancer today. <laughs> So, the the Dreamcatcher film. Oh, boy. So, all-star cast. Totally. Top to bottom. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's fucking unreal. And they're all committed. Um, in different ways, Damian Lewis is very committed to the role. But much like Brad Dorif, Damian Lewis is aware of what Dreamcatcher is. And decides, fuck it. Just fuck it. Jamie, describe Damien Lewis's performance once he becomes possessed by an alien entity. Well, then he becomes Mr. Grey. He's going to take over this godforsaken planet one way or the other. Farts or no farts. Yeah, Damien Lewis does, like, a ridiculous British fop accent for the (laughs) personality inside of him. (laughs) All right. 
One. It's delightful. It's like Damien Lewis doing Shakespeare about farts. Like, it's like a turducken of conflicting tones and attitudes. With a big smile on his face. He's having so much fun. Like you said, he knows he's in Dreamcatcher. What was that, Mr. Jones? What did we just pass on the road there? Are you speaking to me? Yes, I am, Mr. Jones. Or is it Jonesy? That's what your friends call you, isn't it? Let's be friends. Why are you letting me live? I'm borrowing you. We're going to take a little journey. Beaver never hurt a soul, and you killed him. Your friend had nothing in his head. I've already found something useful in yours. Fuck you. I know what that expression means. Isn't this movie like two hours long or something, too? Like two and a half hours long? It's long. It's very it's the long. Book as is shit. a fucking phone book. Yeah. How um, did they stretch something like that out for that many hours? Road trip. Uh, Here's something that will excite you, though, Cody. Uh, Scooby Doo is integral to the plot. Oh. <laughs> in the movie form or just the book form or both? Both. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, do, I, do I have to watch Dreamcatchers tonight? Yes. Um, it's at this point, I think we should explain Duddits. So, <laughs> as a Stephen King fan, you notice a lot of things about his work that stick out as being particularly odd or out of place. As, as much as you love the man, there's there's those quirks that everyone notices, the obsession with farting, the preoccupation with rubes. And, of course, his bizarre fetishization of the mentally handicapped, who are always, always, always mystical and not of this world. <laughs> and the ultimate Stephen King, psychic, mentally challenged person, is Duddits, <laughs> who's played by Donnie Wahlberg. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? So it's Donnie Wahlberg, <laughs> who sucks, giving one of those performances. Oh, no. Surrounded by, like, Jason Lee and Thomas J. and Lewis. And it's some of the most bizarre shit in the world. Like, imagine, imagine the kids from It running into Adrian Brody in the village. Yeah, that's it. Oh no. Tropic Thunder had not been invented yet to warn Donnie Wahlberg not to do this. <laughs> it's it's all it's a downright offensive almost performance. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. It's full bad color. My favorite part of it though, besides him singing the Scooby-Doo theme while doing that performance, <laughs> is the alien's name that is Damian Lewis is Mr. Gray, because, you know, gray alien, blah, blah, blah. So Wahlberg, in his performance, pronounces Mr. Gray a little bit differently. He he says Mr. Gay. Like, it's it's unequivocal. I think Donnie might have been doing it on purpose. It's entirely possible, because somebody had to have noticed. You would think, after, the, like, the weeks of doing it, someone would have been like, wait a minute. Hmm. The end of this movie is Mr. Gray trying to poison the water supply of the town like he's the Joker. <laughs> and fucking <laughs> Damian Lewis and Thomas Jane are wrestling around at a fucking reservoir. 
when Donnie Wahlberg as Duditz walks in dramatically to a hero's score and says, Hello, Mr. Gay. <laughs> and he's clutching what? His Scooby-Doo. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a totem for strength. I would do the same. <laughs> it's like, it's like it's made of nope. And then he goes, I done it and transforms into a dragon. <laughs> what? Whoa, what? And Damien Lewis also transforms into a dragon and they have a big shitty CGI fight. No while one... Thomas Jane watches and goes, oh! <laughs> no one mentioned that there was like the Mortal Kombat Annihilation ending stuck into this thing. Yes, yes it's that's it. That. <laughs> Because Duditz was also an alien. This, plot this isn't was... in the book. They made this up. They fucking made this up in the movie to make it less confusing. This is a step up. So that means an alien at some point before the Greys crash landed got stranded on Earth and pretended to be a little boy with down syndrome <laughs> grow to middle age and then die of cancer because <laughs> you also get to see fucking Donnie Wahlberg as Duditz in a hospital bed taking chemotherapy this is a horrible fucking <laughs> why have they tried to assign all the prestige tropes to one character and then force that character to be acted by Don Wahlberg of all people. <laughs> Directed by Lawrence Kasdan. <laughs> One of the greatest writers to ever live. The man who gave us The Force Awakens recently. Like, so there was a recovery from this. Like, it's Empire Strikes Back, The Big Sleep, Dreamcatcher from <laughs> The Force Awakens. Those are his significant works. What a... What's amazing is... What a hell of a thing. What Hearts in Hearts in Atlantis was after this, wasn't it? Hearts in Atlantis was two thousand one. Ah, okay. So that so fucking Hearts in Atlantis led to Dreamcatcher. Yeah, that's interesting. He should have learned his lesson. As Hearts in Atlantis isn't good, but it's strictly eh, King. Like you will not remember it five minutes after it's over. All I remember is Anthony Hopkins making a fart noise with his mouth because it's a Stephen King movie. <laughs> For some reason, I never picked up on the flatulence theme in King before. So now, whenever I read, I'm uh, probably yeah. see King it loves boners and farts. Yeah, the, well, the boners that... for sure. Yeah, that, that's that's a big part of King. But uh, the farts didn't notice. There's a moment I think every Stephen King fan has in his or her life where they realize that their favorite author is also that weird uncle who likes to talk about boners and farts all day and always wears a Hawaiian shirt to barbecues. It's the it's the uncle from Bobby's World. I was about Pretty to say, much. like, I'm an uncle. I like wearing Hawaiian shirts. Is that you? <laughs> Since when do you like wearing Hawaiian shirts? Oh, I wear Hawaiian shirts all the time. I wear one to work every Friday. Under the cardigan? <laughs> no, it's it's casual wear Friday, so I figured out. Oh, might as well make this uh, extra relaxed. So you have Hawaiian <laughs> shirts and a and Diki Diki mugs. Oh yeah, uh, I think we can call it Mikey's that guy. Yeah, yeah. Do you also have bare feet slippers? No, 
Although the idea does amuse me. You about to say you did you you said no with like repentance. Like oh No, because I always wanted to get like a pair of those monster feet slippers where they're like big old green ogre toes. Those yeah. would be pretty delightful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cody is definitely that guy. But speaking of inexplicable flatulence, I think we have to talk about the time Stephen King got behind the camera. Bum 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 when, when, when you want something done right, Jamie, you gotta do it yourself. <laughs> Meteor shit. I'm going to scare the <laughs> hell out of you. Possibly my favorite intro to any movie ever. It's the greatest trailer of all time. Also proves Stephen King was under the impression that was a horror film. <laughs> At least he told himself he could sell it that way. Uh, Max Motor Drive, of course. What a thing. Uh, <laughs> credits. Good night, everybody. Most accurate description of that movie I've heard. Honestly, like thing. people, people stand by it wholeheartedly, but it's like this is clearly a terrible movie. <laughs> almost it's no unwatchable. Or, yeah, almost no parts of this I would say are good, but it, it's one of those so bad it has its charms. Like watching a man be killed by a vending machine chucking sodas at his head. That's that's got some charm to it. Watching a boy get run over by a steamroller. That's my favorite part. Watching Giancarlo Esposito get electrocuted by an arcade game. <laughs> that was a weird discovery. Like, Maximum Overdrive is magical because it's bad in a way movies aren't supposed to be. Like, not movies of this size. Like, this is something you'd expect to, like, go direct to a drive-in in, like, 1978 and star no one. This is a fucking Emilio Estevez movie. Being directed by the biggest author in the fucking world. It's kind of prestige, and yet it is maximum overdrive. How did Dino De Laurentiis let this happen? I feel like he should have been paying some level of attention It's a good fucking question, right? Like, I understand Stephen King was probably flying high as a kite when he made it, but you have to think that someone would go, oh, it's a first-time director. We should probably make sure there's like a, a competent assistant director who has the balls to be like, hey, boss, uh, this isn't right. Let's make sure somebody isn't horribly injured by one of our props, which happened. I didn't hear that story. Oh, uh, yeah, I believe that was the, the lawnmower, wasn't it, Mike? Yes, it was the lawnmower. I think it, it exploded or something. I don't remember. It took out a guy's eye. Yeah, like he, oh, he was shit. permanently injured. There was a lawsuit. He permanently is missing one eye now because of maximum fucking overdrive. How mad would you be if you got turned into Snake Plissken but less cool? Well, I don't know, guy. Maybe he's really cool. Maybe he is Snake Plissken. <laughs> for maximum, for the sake of maximum overdrive. Like, if I lost an eyeball and they were making Blade Runner 2049, I'd be like, all right, well, shit, that, that's worth it. If it was for, like, Fury Road, I'd be like, well, fuck, all right. That was worth the sacrifice. Maximum Overdrive would be like, God damn it, get my eye back. In fact, I want a third eye just in case you fuck me up again. And and not even from one of the truck scenes. One of the weird, pointless cutaways to other shit happening in the world. That's technically a comedy scene, so it's more insulting. <laughs> I mean, people have come to think of Maximum Overdrive as a comedy, so that's probably better. I mean, it's hilarious. We made you! <laughs> like, it's fucking hilarious, but I do think people kind of overstate how fun Maximum Overdrive is as a bad movie. It's kind of hard to watch. Like, if yeah, if you're in a crowd, I guess, like, if you're in a group or a crowd, like an Alamo screening, probably pretty fucking fun. But 
it wears it it wears down pretty fucking quickly. I would love to attend a theater screening of Maximum Overdrive, not because it's fun, but because it is a thing to behold. Like it's like something that would be in Desaad's court. <laughs> like it's a work of anti-art. Yet it gave us who made who. It gave us a great many things. Like, doesn't it kind of anger you that stuff exists because of Maximum Overdrive? Like, it's a fixed point in time and space. It had to happen. <laughs> you can't get rid can of it. never be fixed. God. All this makes me want to do is see, uh, remember hearing about Maximum King? That, like, blacklist script that was supposed to be, like, uh, focusing on Stephen King making Maximum Overdrive? No, I missed this. Yeah, it's, it's been on there since like 2016 or something, but it was supposed to be a drama comedy about Stephen King dealing with his cocaine addiction and trying to make Maximum Overdrive. So it's it's basically nonfiction, but not quite a documentary. I don't think it's ever been picked up by anyone, probably because I imagine like Stephen King doesn't necessarily want a movie out there like this. Probably or not. anyone else involved. Like, you know, I'd say wait a couple of years at least. Yeah, I mean... Boy, Anchor Bay probably also not be happy about it if they're still around. Is Anchor Bay still around? They were bought up by somebody, weren't they? Yeah, they're still around. Yeah. It's one of those deals where it's like, boy, I would love to read the script about this. Because I don't think we'll ever actually see the movie. I would just love to be a fly on the wall the day Stephen King went up to Dilo Denorentis and said, Here's my pitch. Emilio Estevez versus sentient trucks at a gas station. And I want ACDC. To do the score. And I want the villain truck to be the Green Goblin. <laughs> I need someone to talk to Marvel. This is essential. There must be a Green Goblin truck. And then Dino De Laurentiis just looked at him shrewdly. And then pushed forward a giant tray of cocaine. <laughs> and I imagine De Laurentiis is dressed as like one of the Birdmen from Flash Gordon too. Like, I don't know if anybody <laughs> else gets that. Like he's dressed I, like I'm Voltan. sure he's very spilt. Yeah. I, I think I've explained this story to you guys before, but uh, when I went to go see Evil Dead 2, Bruce Campbell talked about working with Dino De Laurentiis, and Dino would come in to tell them what to cut when he watched dailies, and to do so, he would just hold his hand up to the screen and go, No! 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 Until it got back to something he wanted to see, and then he would put his hand back down. And they would know, okay, while well, Dino was shouting, that all needs to get cut out. Or occasionally, he would just point at the dailies and go, Put in... The devil. We need the <laughs> devil. I say that all the time. And Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi were like, oh, Satan himself isn't in this movie, but he also has all the money. So whatever you say, Dino, put it in. Well, God, Maximum Overdrive is the reason we have Evil Dead 2, isn't it? Also that, yeah. So uh, at one point, Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi got together and they're like, fuck, okay. Crime Wave did not do well. We need to make money. What if we did an Evil Dead 2? And they started putting money together for it, and they started hiring assistants to help them get up to speed. And they realized they didn't have enough cash to make Evil Dead 2, so they had to start letting go of assistants. One of the people left that production, got hired on to Maximum Overdrive, and when this assistant was introducing herself to King, she mentioned like, oh yeah, I'm only taking this job because I was working on another guy's picture and they couldn't pay me. And Stephen King says, oh, what project? She goes, it was Evil Dead 2. Stephen King goes, holy shit, because Stephen King was one of the main guys who made Evil Dead 1 a thing that was popular. His review of Evil Dead 1 changed critical opinion from this is schlock to 
oh, wow, this is an exciting new horror movie from visionary directors and creators. So Stephen King <laughs> just walks over to a phone after this conversation with this assistant, picks it up, calls Dino De Laurentiis and says, hey, these guys want to make Evil Dead 2. Give them the money. And then just hangs up. Like, that was the conversation. It wasn't even a talk. It was just Stephen King bossing <laughs> Dino De Laurentiis around because apparently that was their power balance. So Dino called them up and basically said, like, oh, fuck it. Yeah, I already sold the international rights. No problem. Let's make this thing. And that's how we got Evil Dead 2. Stephen King randomly got involved by happenstance. Dino De Laurentiis had money and said, yeah, why not? I like the first one, probably. I didn't see it. Movies. It's a weird, small world. What a business. What a business. You never know what you're going to get. I have no way out of that hole, so I'm just going to let that hang for It's a good ending line. (laughs) I thought it was, but I'm like, is that really the end? That feels very abrupt for people at home. Besides, I didn't even get to ask you guys how you feel about the movie Cell. The answer, that one's bad. We, we don't have to talk about Cell. Oh, quick question. Mike, is Needful Things good? Well, Max von Sydow very briefly makes passionate love to uh, Bonnie Bedelia. <laughs> Two thumbs way up. Does that answer your question in any way? or? No, yet I, I'm more intrigued now. Yeah. Who plays Sheriff Panghorn in uh, Needful Things, the TV show, movie? Uh, it was a movie first, then they just had so much footage they shot, they could turn it into a miniseries. <laughs> of course. Um, Ed Harris. Wow. That's actually a pretty good casting. You know that moment in a Walking Dead episode uh, during the first Alexander storyline where Rick is just going insane and giving a speech to the entire town, and he's really he's... crazy and shit? Ed Harris has that yeah. moment, but it's like a non-crazy <laughs> speech, but he still sounds crazy. And then a building blows up. <laughs> because oh, a dude has spoiler. a bomb strapped to him when he tries to take out Satan with a bomb and then it doesn't work and then Satan gives a speech and then just kind of walks away and gets in his car and drives off credits is that the ending I have to look forward to when I get to the end of this book I have been chugging along at this thing I'm like 450 pages in oh man I my disappointment is palpable I'm just so sad right now if I get to the end of the book and it's like what you just described I'm gonna be bummed well, no, Panghorn says, I have to go. Hell needs me, and then descends downward. I mean, he's a magic trick kind of guy, so I imagine he pulls himself into a magician's hat and disappears, and the hat goes straight to hell. I really hate that fucking movie. Well, Mike, they can't all be the Night Flyer. But what can? But what can? Well, that was ominous. Yeah, I thought that was a good way to end. So anyways, folks, if you've enjoyed this podcast or any of our other ones... You can find more of us at boxofficepulp.com. We're also on Stitchers. I Stitcher. Stitchers, isn't that Stitchers. what Stitchers. 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 It's the S. <laughs> We're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter at Box Office Pulp. Facebook, you name it. We're around. Check us out. We do things. Uh, yeah. Not always talking about Stephen King, even if it does feel like it. Yeah. 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 For 40 more minutes. Get out. <laughs> That's a wrap, folks. Get the hell out of here. Meteor shit. Is that our new pretty neat? <laughs> I like me. it. <laughs> I just want to say for the record. I watched Trucks. Oh, did God. not bring it up because 
there's nothing to say about trucks. It's just maximum overdrive without the funny bad parts. Without the charm, if you can call it that. There's a lot or- to not say about a lot of bad Stephen King movies. Like, we didn't we didn't bring up most of Mick Garris' filmography. I feel bad talking shit on Mick Garris. They're all bad movies. Atrocious. But the man himself seems very nice. Mick Garris is awesome, yet makes bad movies. It's very confusing. That's the thing. Mick Garris, like the pod host, fantastic, the best, super nice, great interviewer, all that kind of shit. Mick Garris, the creative force, please no. Sleepwalkers was real bad, and they had Ron Perlman. I don't know how you fuck it up that much. Sleepwalkers is at least delightfully bad. That is a movie where a dude skewers a cop with a stick, transforms into a cat, then looks at the camera and says, Cop kebab! <laughs> Jamie, it's worse than you remember. It's not a stick, it's corn on the cob. Corn? <laughs> corn? Corn. Corn. For real, though, there's a dinner scene and the bad guy just picks up corn on the cob and stabs another man to death. It Once in the back, and that's that's all it takes. Deadliest plant.
This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.